Before uh, Ben comes up, he has asked me just to uh, do the scripture reading to, um, so that we have the context for today's message. So if you would turn in your Bibles, uh, we're going to do a little bit of flipping, but uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5, and keep your finger in Psalm 32. So 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5, we're also going to read a little portion in 2 Samuel 12. So You can just follow along and um, if you wish, but uh, if you have your Bibles, at least turn to Psalm 32. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. David and Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one evening when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So the rest of chapter 11, you will find really the tragic story of how David was trying to cover up his sin. He put himself in a situation to sin by not going to battle as he should have. And David's plot to cover his sin of adultery was twofold. One, he tried to have Uriah come back from the battle, sleep with his wife so that it could be claimed that that was his child. And the second one was even worse, um, he had Uriah killed on the battlefield by sending him into a no-win battle. So Uriah dies, and David sends for Bathsheba to be his wife. If we turn to Second Samuel 12, Nathan comes along, Nathan the prophet, David's friend, was sent by the Lord to confront David about his sin. And Nathan tells David a story that enrages David so much that he says in verse 5, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then if we go to chapter, or verse 7, where Nathan says, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. And I gave you my master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? So Nathan, in uh, 10 and 12 verses, he explains the cost of David's sin. And then in verse 13, It says, David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, 1 to 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You can leave your Bibles open to Psalm 32. We're going to be there for most of the message this morning. Thank you for reading that for me, Peter. On January 16th, 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia lifted off for what was supposed to be a routine flight. Shortly after liftoff, a piece of insulating foam from the shuttle's external fuel tanks broke off and just slightly struck the Columbia's left wing. This action was caught on video, but it was presumed that no severe damage had actually occurred. However, that was a wrong assumption. The foam from the fuel tanks had actually punctured the wing's thermal protection system. So the serious of the damage became evident when Columbia went to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere on February the 1st. The damaged wing was no longer protected from the extreme heat caused by the re-entry and the shuttle disintegrated in midair, killing all seven passengers. NASA's failure to correctly assess the damage prevented it from taking the action that could have, been avoided, that could have avoided these deadly results. Unfortunately for us, mankind faces a similar, but also probably more tragic situation. Shortly after creation, Adam sinned. With Adam as the head, the whole human race fell under God's condemnation. Sin now rules every unregenerate, unrepentant heart. And if it had its way, it would actually destroy every soul. The damage, just like the Columbia example I just gave, though seemingly small at first glance by Adam, would actually plunge the entire race into sin-filled living. Let's get a few facts about sin straight before we jump into the word this morning. Sin is an offense to God. Sin is contrary to God's holy nature. Scripture calls sin filthiness and even compares it to a corpse. Sinners are the tombs that, con that contain stench and foulness. The ultimate penalty, death, is the consequence of sin. Humanity is in bad shape because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God wants you to understand how bad sin is and how terrifying its consequences are. 
You really should not take sin lightly or dismiss your own guilt as if it's nothing. Quite the opposite. You should actually hate your sin. However, sin tempts even the best of believers and even the godliest among us. Thinking back to the scripture reading that Peter uh, read for me, David was a man who was known to be after God's own heart. And yet he entered into temptation and committed unimaginable sin of adultery, deception, betrayal, and then ultimately murder. Until you understand how, your offen- how offensive your sin is before God, you can never know him. If a man of David's caliber can fall so far, where does that leave you and me, the average Joe? If you're honest, you would admit that sometimes you love your sin, dare I say even delight in it, and maybe even seek opportunities to act on it. You know in your heart that you're guilty before a holy God, yet you do everything in your power to hide it or to cover up your sinfulness. In a word, you deny it, just like David did. David's reaction to his sin, like the rest of humanity, can actually fall into three general categories. The first one being, you try to cover it up. Secondly, you try to justify yourself. And most often, you're oblivious to your own sin. Let's dig into those three topics a bit further. First, you try to cover it up. That's what David tried to do when he sinned against Uriah. He had committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and when she became pregnant, David first plotted to make it seem as if Uriah was the father of the baby. That didn't work, so he made Uriah uh, go into a no-win situation on the battlefield. That only made the situation worse and added to his problems. For all the months of Bathsheba's pregnancy, David continued to cover his sin, and later, When David repented, he confessed in Psalm 32, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the heat of summer. The word guilt is something that our society does not like to embrace today. People who trouble themselves with feelings of personal guilt are usually referred to therapists whose task is to boost their patient's self-image or self-esteem. No one, after all, is supposed to feel guilty. Guilt is not conducive to dignity and self-esteem. Society encourages sin, but it won't actually deal with or tolerate the guilt that sin produces. The world's way of dealing with guilt is to suppress it or to train ourselves to ignore it completely. But the answer to dealing with guilt is not to ignore it. That's the most dangerous thing you can do. Instead, you need to understand that God has graciously implanted in you an ally to help you, to aid you in the battle. He gave you your conscience, and that's a gift that brings about joy and freedom. The guilt that David was feeling from his sin was so intense that he describes it in Psalm 32 as his bones wasting away. That sounds like a heavy and hard thing to deal with, which it is, which is why the Lord was doing that to him. You see, we're a stubborn people. God sometimes needs to use that heavy hand against us, just like a parent having to discipline their child. The second way we try to deny our sin is we try to justify ourselves. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, 
Adam, upon sinning, blamed Eve. And how did he describe it? The woman you gave to me. He goes on to blame the woman, and he blames God. In blaming Eve, Adam was blaming God, he reasoned, who was responsible for the woman who caused him to sin. You might also try to excuse your wrongdoing by saying, oh, it's someone else's fault. You may argue that you have good reason for sin, maybe to return evil for evil. You call sin a sickness. Maybe we use the term mental condition or maybe a hormone imbalance. I don't know. You can excuse yourself as a victim and you can deny that you've done anything wrong at all. Your sinful heart will always find creative ways to try to justify its own evil. The main justification for sin that you see in our world today is that you excuse yourself as the victim. I hate to tell you this, but when it comes to sin, you are not the victim. You're the villain. Your life, your heart, your thoughts are riddled and wrecked by sin and rejection of God, which makes you the source of your own distress. Excusing your sin and attempting to put the blame onto others or onto circumstances, or even onto God, will just push you deeper into that sin. In David's case, when he was confronted with his sin by his friend Nathan, he could have said, who are you to tell me, the king, that I've done something wrong? But instead, how did he reply in 2 Samuel? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. That awareness of what he's done is a key component to turning from your sin and running to the cross. The third reason we deny our sin is because sometimes we're oblivious to our own sinful nature. Whether in ignorance or presumption, you sin, and you sin often. That's why David prayed, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. It's those hidden faults that God actually sees in plain daylight. And they are just as offensive to him as the presumptuous sins. Because sin is so pervasive, your natural tendency would be to be insensitive to your own sin, sin, just as a skunk doesn't realize how badly it actually stinks. So the question is today, what are we going to do about our sin? Sin is a horrible sickness. There's no cure. It's an incurable leprosy of the soul, as it says in Isaiah 1. And all humanity is sick, top to bottom, inside out. No one is exempt. The only cure for your guilt over your sin is forgiveness. And with that comes the only necessity for forgiveness, which is repentance. There's an inseparable link among these three qualities. Guilt, repentance, forgiveness. Guilt should always lead you to repentance which will always lead to forgiveness. Anyone who has gone through the pain of genuine repentance, I'm sure, has experienced the great joy found in the forgiveness. The ultimate goal of repentance is the restoration to fellowship with God and to the experience that unspeakable joy of forgiveness. David speaks of this joy found in forgiveness in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David pronounces a blessing on those who have their sin covered, 
who have genuine forgiveness of sin. The pronouncement is much different than some of the other books in the Old Testament who pronounce judgment instead of blessing. For example, woe is used by Isaiah in chapter 6, where he pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I am an unclean man. But here David is giving the contrast to the woe, which is the blessings found in he whose transgressions are forgiven. And I can't think of anything more foundational to the Christian life than that, because every Christian is a person whose sins have been forgiven. And to enter into that reconciled relationship with God by which our sins forgiven is to enter into a state of blessedness. We are blessed not because we were righteous, but we are blessed because we are forgiven. David said not only are we blessed by forgiveness, but we are blessed because our sin has been hidden from God. Our sin has been covered. The first covering for our sin was the clothes that God made for Adam and Eve when they were ashamed of their nakedness and hiding in the garden to conceal themselves from the sight of God. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count iniquity. At the heart of the gospel is this concept of imputation. Now, generally, I don't understand big words like that, and I shy away from them, but imputation is actually a very easy theological term to grasp. But the term imputation means a legal transfer of accounts, a reckoning, or a transfer. This transfer takes place on the cross. It's there that we see our sins transferred to Christ, who is our substitute. That is, our sins are imputed to him legally, so that when God looks down from heaven at his son on the cross, he sees our guilt covered in Christ. He sees our iniquity on Christ by way of imputation. And the other part of that is the gospel in reverse, where it says God imputes his righteousness to us. He gets the bad, we get the good. That's a good deal. Rather than imputing to us the real guilt that we bear and therefore receive the punishment that we deserve, instead, the Lord does not count our sins against us. And not only does he not count our sins against us, but he counts Christ's righteousness to us. It doesn't get any better than that. We have this beautiful transfer take place. To put it simply with the scriptures, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Don't be like the NASA scientists who I talked about at the beginning. NASA's failure to assess the damage, prevented it from taking the appropriate action that could have avoided the deadly results. For the Christian, who is stuck in the mire of sin, who, like David, feels the heavy hand of the Lord upon him, the Lord doesn't leave you alone to deal with your sin. He's such a good God that he's given us all that we need in order to get right with him. What we need to do is we need to confess and forsake our known sins. Examine your guilt feelings in light of Scripture. David, when examining where he was at and what he had done with regards to his sin, said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David went from the agony of that physical suffering of bearing his own guilt 
described as bones wasting away and strength being dried up to coming before the Lord, acknowledging, confessing, uncovering, and being forgiven, and then being blessed by having his sins forgiven and covered. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and he forgave the guilt of my sin. Don't tell yourself, ah, my sin's not a big deal. If I confess, it's taking something small and making it big, so I'll just keep it to myself. Don't tell yourself, I've got this under control. I'm going to stop as of today, and then there's no need to confess. Or from this moment on, I'm going to be real. I'll be the real me. The next time I commit sin, I promise that I'm going to confess. Your failure to confess and deal with your sin shows a view of sin that's too naive and also a view of God that's way too small. That unconfessed sin is what lies between you and the joy of fully wrapping your arms around the gospel that you know to be true. Many of us uh, find ourselves in spiritual ruts from time to time. You feel a lack of passion for the things of God that maybe in a different season marked your Christian life. Among the many possible reasons you could find yourself in one of these ruts is unconfessed sin. These ruts might be small, where you're just stuck kind of spinning your tires in the winter, where you know you can get out, but it's going to take some work to get it out. Or these ruts can be more like a pit. A pick that's so dark and so deep that you cannot see the light of day, the rays of the sun. And I can promise you this, there is no climbing out of the pit for the one who refuses to let go of his habitual, unconfessed sin. If you think you're in the bottom of that pit and you're reaching and you're clawing, there's tree roots, you're trying to grab onto the mud, the grass, whatever you can to pull yourself out. As soon as you have that baggage on this hand, there's no way you're going to pull yourself out. You can protect your image and refuse to confess your sins openly if you wish, but it comes at a cost of a deep and abiding relationship with God. If you feel your bones wasting away through your groaning all day long, you feel your strength is sapped as in the heat of summer, this is the time to confess and repent and find forgiveness in the cross of Christ. Puritan pastor John Owen, in one of his classic works, The Mortification of Sin, says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's right, it's a kill or be killed situation. I'm going to ask Jody to come up right now. She's going to lead us through a hymn of confession. There's not too many hymns out there that are hymns of confession. This is a very good hymn. The words of this hymn are a great response to the word this morning. Listen to the words. You can use them for yourself, for where you're at in your life, and use it as an opportunity to cry out to God to have mercy. Oh, mm-hmm. 
for closing our eyes, for scorning our very neighbor. In thought, word, and deed, we failed you, our King. How deeply we need a Savior. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Don't try to soften the blow of conviction you receive when you read and hear God's word. When the law acts as a mirror and you see all your blemishes and all your stains, don't look away. Take note of what those are. And then those are the sins that you can grieve over and confess to God in prayer. 
Those are the ones that the Son of God took on flesh to deal with it. Let him do that for you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The good news is is that those who have been united by faith in Christ have experienced the indwelling of God's Spirit and they can repent. And they can do so freely and boldly knowing that we have complete forgiveness in him. We may not be free of the consequences of our sins. We'll have to deal with those as they come up. But we can know that we are free from sin's condemnation. Because in Christ, condemnation is no longer possible. We are his forever. Brothers and sisters, do you want to restore the joy of your salvation? Do you want to stop feeling the weight of sin? Do you want to become useful to your Savior again? Confess, repent, and turn from your sin. When looking at David's sin, there's two parallel passages to what we uh, read this morning in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. One is Psalm 32, which we just walked through, and the other one is Psalm 51. And we're going to read that together. So I'm going to have you all stand with me. There's going to be a part for the leader to read, and there's going to be a part for the congregation to respond. So please stand. The words will be up behind me here. Psalm 51, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You can respond. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Amen and amen. We'll ask you to remain standing. The music team's going to come up and lead us.